0: Welcome to the latest episode of Bring Back V10s. Now, normally this is the part of the show where I come up with something snappy to say about the episode we're going to talk about and the music fades out into the background. But our episode today is going to take us all over the place to talk about some great subjects and major storylines that were going on in F1 around the time of the 1993 Portuguese Grand Prix. So you can't really wrap it all up in one hit All I can tell you is get ready for talk about Nigel Mansell, Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost, Mika Hakkinen, Michael Andretti, Michael Schumacher, Jos Verstappen, Peugeot, Lamborghini and much, much more. Before we get going, remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or leave us a five star review and submit a question there too. We've had another load of reviews in, so I'll give a quick thank you to Alex G, DC Roberts, Wright Palava and many more for the recent reviews we've had. The questions are mounting up, so we might have to go back on our vow not to break the series finale into two episodes again like we did last time. Anyway, back to today and Portugal 93 because we've got a lot to get through. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for what's going to be an epic episode are Edge Draw and Bring Back V10's returnee, ex-F1 driver and Sky Sports F1 pundit and expert Karun Chanduk. Karun, welcome back. You appeared on the first two episodes ever of Bring Back V10s when we talked about Alain Prost getting fired by Ferrari. So you know the drill by now. The opening question is what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of our subject for the day? But you've seen this script and you know how all over the place we're going. So which storyline are you going to pick?
1: Well, I think there's, as you said, there's so many things going on. Um, I think the Hakkinen debut and the um, the merry-go-round of the seats around Prost, Senna, and Williams, um, you know that's that's got to be the two big takeaways, you know. Let alone the fact that Michael Schumacher won his second ever Grand Prix <laughs> that weekend. That's almost uh, a byline in in everything that happened around that race, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, you know, it can get overlooked. But someone who I don't think is going to overlook it is Ed, because Ed, I know this is one of your favorite races of all time. So when you look back at what you want to pick out are you thinking more of the track action than the news pages of the the magazines at the time yeah i
2: am because it, it's a it's a forgotten classic as well as being that important win for schumacher uh, but sometimes there are moments in races that that stay with you for, for some reason and just get imprinted on your memory and i can remember watching the race live and having already been you know really excited by Micah Hakkinen's qualifying performance I thought he had the lead into turn one, and then you had John John Alacy sweeping around the outside in that brilliant move. just encapsulates the race for me. But as we'll talk about, there's just so much going on on and off track that it's just a fantastic weekend to to focus on. We could do a whole season on this one, I think.
0: Yeah, we could. And there's a couple of spoilers there for anyone who doesn't know what happens in this race. So Schumacher wins, and Alacy takes the lead at the start. But before we get to Estoril, there's a big story on the other side of the Atlantic the week before the race because Nigel Mansell seals the IndyCar championship at the first attempt. It meant that for a week, Mansell was the reigning champion in both F1 and IndyCar, an achievement that he was very proud of then, and I'm pretty sure still is now. Ed, we'd have to break our own rules to a spectacular degree to do a full Mansell IndyCar episode in the future, but maybe we will. Let's have a very quick chat about it now. IndyCar was in a very different place back then to where it is today. So, how big of an achievement was it for Mansell to go over there as a rookie and win the title?
2: Oh, it was a huge achievement. I think the key was that he approached it in exactly the right way studied, watched every race, learned, absorbed, and I think he respected the challenge, which sometimes drivers that go over to a category like that, don't. He was in exactly the right place with Newman-Hass, with the excellent 93 Lola, so that was the place to be. But these were all unfamiliar tracks, mostly unfamiliar rivals, with the added challenge of adapting to the ovals, which was multiplied by that big crash at Phoenix early in the season that kept him out for a race. And he came back to dominate more often than not on ovals. It's pre-simulators, so to go straight away into it, into a, a kind of alien environment. And when the title was a fantastic achievement. I think it shows how how good Mansell was. And there's a story I always remember as well from talking to Raoul Bazell who was racing against him that year, this was the year when Dick Simon Racing were really strong and Bazell was unfortunate not to, to win a race. And one of the reasons the team was strong was they'd worked out something quite clever with the way they, they ran the front wing, but it was always covered, so they couldn't get a good close look at it. And apparently just at one race, just before the race, Mansell just walks up to Bazell's car and just took the cover off so they could get a clear look at it. So he had that <laughs> edge as well. You know, he wasn't willing to leave any stone unturned. So yeah, just, I, I think Mansa we often think of as this sort of aggressive, sort of almost bullying on track driver in a positive way but there's far more to him that intelligent good all-round approach and while there was always a drama surrounding him I think we cannot underestimate how professional he was in his approach it bears comparisons with what Alonso did when he went to Indy the first time with the work and the rigour and the respect he brought to the challenge
0: yeah the way you were describing it there it did sound a lot like Fernando Alonso taking on the Indy 500 and that's the second mention Raul Boiselle's had in this series which is quite impressive But it's also announced around this time that Mansell had signed a contract extension with Newman Haas to keep him in America until the end of 1995, which included renegotiating terms for 94. I'm sure that was in Nigel's favour as well. Mansell said in his 1990s autobiography, because he's done a few, uh, that Bernie Eccleston was constantly trying to get him back into F1 while he was in America. And at the end of 93, Bernie actually told Autosport magazine that he tried, but there wasn't a seat available for 94. Bernie said, "I did everything I could to get him back to f one. That's where Nigel should be. Coren, do you think f one was missing out by not having Mansell on the grid in ninety three?
1: I think so. I mean, I think that you know whatever you you like or dislike or Nigel Mansell, you can't deny the fact that he was box office glory, wasn't he? He was just, you know, there was drama. there was always something about him that that, you know, fans really endeared, you know, he endeared himself to the fans. I think it's something that got himself on the headlines, on the front pages of the newspapers, not just the back pages. And Nigel was was that sort of character. Um, you know, we, we had the drama in 93 around Senna and the will he, won't he drive saga that went on with McLaren for the first half of the year. Um, you, were, you know, but otherwise, as far as seasons went, it was fairly non-controversial, wasn't it? You know, you had... A few little bits and pieces going on behind the scenes about will active suspension be banned mid-season and then there was an issue with Williams filing the entry but it was all sort of administrative stuff it wasn't the the big um box office dramas that we used to see with Nigel and I think that that part certainly the fans missed out uh, a little bit and you know that we had it in America is not it you know he went there in a second race what happens? He ends up in the wall. He's ended up with, you know, 40 stitches up his back and a, the gearbox has punched a hole in the wall at Phoenix. You know, he just took the drama across the pond to uh, to the IndyCar Championship. And uh, there's no question about it, right? You know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a Mansell fan, um, you know, in terms of, I think, what he did for the fans. He just, he always seemed to be there putting on a show. He, he was a showman and, and, you know, something that, Damon Hill and I have had so many conversations about is he will just take over. You know, Damon talks about MagniCore 94. I I know I'm going off track, but that's the theme of this podcast, I think.
0: That's all right. That's within the rules here.
1: Yeah. But I remember Damon saying to me, MagniCore 94, Nigel's come back, his first race back. And that's it. It's just, you know, everyone's gone from Damon's side of the garage. And they're all just following this character who's come along to do a one-off in the middle of the year forget the fact that damon's fighting against michael for the world championship nobody cares about that um they all just you know gravitate towards the guy doing the one-off cameo but that that was the power of nigel mansell in that era
0: yeah and i think indycar benefited from that as well and could probably trace some of its, its boom through the 1990s to to the arrival of mansell and we'll stick with an indycar theme for the moment because it was also a week before the portuguese grand prix That Michael Andretti's unhappy time in F1 with McLaren came to an end. Officially, the reason given for the early split was that Andretti had to sign an IndyCar offer from Chip Ganassi to secure a drive for 1994, which to me makes no sense, as he could have signed it and kept racing for McLaren, surely. But Michael did score a podium finish in his final race at Monza and Mario Andretti revealed to road and track in 2018 that Ron Dennis wanted to get rid of Michael before the Italian Grand Prix, but Mario pleaded with him to let Michael race there because of the family's Italian heritage. Speaking to the McLaren website in 2018, Michael said he knew nobody was going to touch me with a 10 foot pole in F1 after that season. And he said, I was over it. I loved IndyCar racing and I just went that way. But he also blames Mario for the decision to go to F1 in the first place. Michael vacated the Newman half seat that Mansell took to glory. And he said before he signed for McLaren, he knew that that Lola Ford package in IndyCar would be super strong. So in that road and track article, which is titled, there's more to Michael Andretti's ill-fated F1 season than meets the eye. If you want to check it out in full, Michael says, there was a moment where, okay, it's time to sign. And I'm like, Dad. There's something, I don't know. I could just stay here and rack up a record. Next year, we're going to win literally every race. I just knew it. Uh, He said, Mario said to him, you're crazy if you don't do it. And then Michael says, so I did it. And that's the last time I ever listened to dad on any advice like that. Ed, actually, last time we had Karun on, we talked about Michael Andretti a little bit because he was linked to a Ferrari seat. So we're back with the three of us together and we're talking about Andretti again, How should his attempt in F1 in 93 be remembered? Was he hard
2: done by or was he just not up to it? Uh, Probably neither or maybe somewhere in between. Uh, Make no mistake, Michael Andretti was absolutely capable of success in Formula One, an outstanding driver. The blemish of that 93 season on his career is completely out of keeping with, with everything else he did. And Michael himself, as you've mentioned is quite negative about what happened that season he talks about nobody knowing the full story of what really happened but unfortunately he's not actually that keen to tell that full story as well so I'd be delighted if we could get him on, on a future episode to talk about it actually because I think it'd be fascinating to really dig into it more. I'm sure he listens so once he hears this he'll be ringing us up. Absolutely he'll be on the phone give, give me a shout Michael uh, but the idea McLaren was doing anything to hold him back deliberately I see no evidence for it's, it's rare teams do that even though he did have some car problems but what is clear is he was in a very difficult situation that three into two driver lineup with Häkkinen and Senna also there the fact he was up against the great Ayrton Senna the lack of laps in practice and qualifying on top of managing I think a grand total of 36 laps in his first four races the ban on testing at circuits ahead of the race unfamiliarity with circuits all counted against him Often it's said he wasn't dedicated enough with that idea that he didn't move to Europe for the start of the season to be fully dedicated to the problem, but I think that's a, that element of it is a bit of a red herring, I think. But when you take a driver of this calibre, you have to look for the, the most obvious factor, and I suspect it was the nature of the cars with these advanced active suspension systems. They required a very specific way of driving that required drivers to almost reprogram their, their natural feel because they had to turn in the car knowing that they get more support from whichever corner was being lent on from the, the active suspension adjusting the car that caused problems for a lot of drivers Ricardo Petrese went from a, a challenger to Mansell at Williams in the 91 passive car to miles off the pace with active in 92 so my suspicion is Michael struggled to adapt to that probably McLaren didn't help him with it and also they had a lot of car problems for him as well but also I think the fact that Michael wasn't really dedicated to the idea of F1 as he might have been, I think Michael suggested that in that, that same interview, I think it was with Marshall Pruitt, there's also a, a podcast version of that uh, by Marshall, of that Road & Track article, had suggested that that had Michael had the same passion for F1 he did and hung on in there, he might have made it work. Possibly true, because I think Michael Andretti in a passive car in 94 could have shown how good he was, I think he'd have been a very different proposition. He tested for McLaren before, there's no way that assigned him, if there was any indication, he'd be an average of one point four seconds off center in qualifying, which is what he was in in ninety three. So it's just one of those things that that didn't work.
0: What do you think, Corrine? do you think, as Ed maybe suggested there, Michael was perhaps unlucky to go from pretty rudimentary indie cars to the most advanced f one cars we ever had?
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think actually the the key point that Ed mentioned there was the lack of running. Um you know, the fact that they were only limited to the I think it was twelve laps, Ed, wasn't it, in qualifying? um you know including in and out laps really so for for a guy who's trying to find his feet in a in a category like formula one where the car is so different to Indy car was so different at that time as well uh and up against you know arguably the greatest racing driver that's that's sat in a cockpit of a formula one car that's a tall order um you know i think it, I fully agree with you. And I I was massively disappointed with how... I remember watching it at the time, thinking how disappointed I was about Michael's F1 foray had gone so badly because, you know, I remember cheering for him in that battle against Bobby Rahal in the 1991 IndyCar Championship. And, um, you know, in 92 as well, he was very competitive. He should have won the Indy 500 at least twice, I think. There was certainly, uh, you know, I think it was fair there's a fair chance he would have won it at least twice. Um, So yeah, top quality driver. It just never happened for him in in Formula 1. I think a big, big effect really has come from the lack of testing. You know, the fact that he couldn't go pounding round and round Estoril. And I think he did some days, didn't he, with a a Honda car before the 93 season. I think it was the back end of 91, even, he came and tested the Honda car at Estoril and stuff. But uh, from what I gather most of his days were either rained off or they had reliability issues and stuff. So he never really got, you know, a proper chunk of mileage, which is what most drivers at that time were doing. Yeah, testing was nowhere near as restricted as it is now.
0: So most people could get the seat time that they needed. We'll stick with the McLaren driver lineup theme for now because the storylines around this race are all over the place and it'd be far too difficult to tackle them all in order. So let's move on to Andretti's replacement at McLaren, which is, of course, Mika Hakkinen. Hackenham was signed from Lotus at the start of 93, briefly as Andresi's teammate, because this was when Ayrton Senna was threatening not to drive for McLaren because he didn't think they'd be competitive enough with customer Ford engines. Then Senna briefly drove the car in pre-season and was pleasantly surprised by it, so he ended up driving for a million dollars per race. Initially, that was a race-by-race race deal, which we will cover in proper detail another time, so that's a check for Karun. Uh, But Senna's manager, Julian Jacoby, said on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast recently that the million dollars per race figure came about because in the negotiation process, Ron Dennis said he only had five million dollars. So Senna said, fine, that's five races. Hacken said he signed the 1993 contract on the understanding that he'd be test driver if Senna came back, but he thought there was no way Senna would. So it was a shock to him when Senna did take the race seat. I interviewed Hacken about this very race years ago when he was in the DTM, and he he said then that Ron promised him at the start of the year that no matter what happened, he would definitely get to race at some point. So Ed, taking that promise from Ron into consideration, once Senna commits for the full season, was Andretti doomed?
2: Well, Andretti was signed to be the the kind of lead driver, effectively, despite the fact he was he was a rookie, and Senna was the the wild card element. In fact, Senna was a massively disruptive. Force in the driver market throughout this whole period. We keep talking about him uh, causing problems with other people's deals. A Lacy at Williams, for example, we were talking about on the French Grand Prix 1990 episode. So I think that did multiply the problems Andretti had because it would have been a very different proposition going up against Hacken and. And I think as Karim was saying with. When Williams gravitated around Mansell, the established star, inevitably McLaren was going to coalesce around around Senna, as well as making probably Michael Andretti look a, a lot a lot worse than he actually was. So, I think it just added to the discomfort. But I, I think underlying it all, that reluctance you mentioned, Glenn, I feel this wasn't Michael Andretti's dream. This was Mario Andretti's dream that. Was being pursued, and I think perhaps that reflects the fact that Mario is, is the European-born driver, even though he moved to America very young. Whereas Michael is uh, is an American-born driver. Perhaps that's what it is. But it he, he just didn't seem to have that determination to hang on in there. A real shame because I'd have loved to see him uh, to see him show what he could do. I'm sure he could have done it. Maybe he could have done it in the passive car in '94 had he hung around. Who knows? <laughs> And while Senna wasn't that interested in
0: testing around this time at McLaren, Hakkinen had got to see enough of him through the year to realise he didn't need to be in awe of him. So when Mika gets the call up for Estoril, he said his only aim was to beat Senna. Mika says that he played it really cool in a build-up to the weekend though, sitting next to Senna in a press conference and not letting on how excited and fired up he was. But interestingly, he described Senna as very cold towards him that weekend, not wanting to give him any help because he viewed him as a threat. It turns out that threat was justified because Hakkinen outqualifies Senna to beat him to third on the grid, just behind the Williams drivers. And I think there's less than a tenth of a second between them. Karun Hakkinen had already raced in F1 for two years by this point with Lotus. But how big a statement was this on his first appearance in what we could call a top car?
1: It was a massive statement. You know, he obviously had been sitting on the sidelines all year watching Michael. Andretti drive the car that he thought he was going to be driving. Well, actually, Senna drove the car he thought he was going to be driving, but either way, he, you know, he believed he was going to be a race driver and then was left for for a large part of that year sitting on the sidelines. So for him to rock up and then out-qualify Senna first time out was a huge statement. First impressions count in F1. We all know that. You know, we all judge people straight away from even the first run they've did sometimes, you know, not not even the first qualifying session. Um, you know, the Formula One paddock on the whole is a very judgmental place. But Mika came into it with all the right credentials, hadn't he? You know, British Formula Three champion at the time when British F3 was the place to be. Um, he'd been competitive in the Lotus up against Johnny, uh, in at uh, you know as you mentioned for those previous two seasons as well. So he came there, but until that qualifying session. especially the second qualifying session as well you know at the end of the two days he's still in front of of Senna um, going into the Grand Prix that's a massive statement and that's a massive confidence boost I think for McLaren as well because they I think they knew heart of hearts that you know Senna's heart wasn't in it right He, he was he spent all of 93 looking for a way out to go to Williams that's all he really wanted to do he Yes, he banked some some money and he took five victories, including some amazing races like Donington. But it, his heart wasn't in it, and I think McLaren and Ron Dennis at the time needed to start looking for that replacement. They needed they needed to to really you know find the guy who was going to take them forward for the next three or four years. And in the end, it Mika turned out to be their man really between '94 and. 2000, you'd say, is, you know, he he ended up filling that role as their number
0: one. Now where this story gets really fun is after qualifying. So Hakkinen is bouncing off the walls with joy. And Senna just wants to know how he's gone quicker than him. And uh, Hakkinen is the one at this point who doesn't want to help the other driver. Hakkinen's been on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast. And on there, he said Senna was not shocked. He was not disappointed. He was simply asking me, what did you do? How did you do that? He was serious about that. I could have started explaining to him how I was using this kind of technique, this and that, but I didn't want to get into that. Now, Mika has his own podcast as well, which you should go and look for. And on that, he was asked a question about this and he confirmed a story, which, is do, which has done the rounds, that he told Senna he needed bigger balls. And explaining Senna's reaction uh, to all of this on the F1 podcast, Mika said, I think it upset him in a big way because he thought, what is this guy all about? Why won't he tell me? I think he took me the wrong way straight away when I didn't tell him the truth of how I'm performing out there. That was not my intention. I was just lightening it up. But for him, it was not the time to joke. It was his time to start working. So, Ed, what do you reckon? Did it also take balls from and to respond to Senna like that? Or was he being disrespectful? Because Mika has admitted on his own podcast that perhaps the way he was joking around with Senna might actually have hurt Senna's ego
2: yeah well he certainly showed that he wasn't willing to be subservient to Senna should we say because you might expect the the young non-established driver to to be asked this question by a great driver and just sort of download everything they knows that that, everything they know about it it was probably a bit of a misjudgment on Mika's part as I imagine it was just a, a kind of flippant comment to try and to try and bat Senna away. Uh, I doubt it was a well-thought-out piece of psychological warfare or anything, even if it was a slightly loaded uh, comment. I wouldn't say disrespectful, because ultimately the other driver's asking him how he did something. So, you know, that that's not being disrespectful, not wanting to give away all of your secrets... I think it also shows that Senna had a good idea that Hakkinen wasn't just an ordinary driver. So a comment like that perhaps had an impact, and maybe for Senna's ego, he could deal with the idea that there was some technique, some clever knack that he hadn't quite got on top of with the car. But sometimes with racing drivers, if you if you kind of prick their ego on the question of uh, of their willingness to to go on the limit and really put themselves on the line, sometimes you can uh, you can get at them that way. I imagine Hakkinen probably remembered that with Senna and, and I do wonder if Senna had it in mind when he uh, lunged his way past Hakkinen on the first lap of the race as well and he thought yeah there's a bit back for you.
0: Hakkinen also has said that the result went down well with the team which I think Karun referred to earlier because the team by this point of the year uh, had felt quite downtrodden by Senna because he seemed uninterested in helping McLaren improve. Hakkinen had been watching this from the sidelines as test driver and felt that Senna should have been more committed to making the car quicker rather than flying back to Brazil between each race. And Mika has said, when Ayrton wasn't there, all the team members, the mechanics and the engineers, they had a little smile on their face at Estoril and they were really happy. The team worked so hard. It was 24-7. They were working harder than ever and the driver complains non-stop, doesn't do the testing. So I think they were happy that he got a lesson and realized that you don't get anything for free. Ed, sticking on the hacking and Senna theme, do you think that, Hakenham's arrival did serve as a wake-up call to Senna?
2: Yeah, I think it unquestionably did so. There were parts of that season where Senna probably wasn't quite willing to dig as deep as he would have done in, say, a championship fight. He was brilliant at times, particularly those early season wins and there are some other strong races. But I think once the whole question of his future was settled, he knew he was heading out. Maybe it took some of that edge off. There's actually an episode of that wonderful '93 documentary series, "The Team," a season in McLaren. And if you've never seen it, I urge you to to seek it out because it's it's really fantastic. Seconded. Exactly. Yeah. Um, third that <laughs> unanimity that's always good uh, but there's an interview with Giorgio Ascanelli who's Senna's race engineer and Ascanelli's a great character a very good engineer obviously he was technical director at Toro Rosso for example when Vettel won at Monza in 2008 um, and, and he does basically accept that Senna maybe lost a bit of edge when the package wasn't competitive and says well I don't blame him he's used to fighting for championship um and and that sort of lodged in my mind, because thinking about this hacker and a revival, giving him that wake-up call, it can't be co- a coincidence that Senna then went on to win the last couple of races. I mean, okay, Frost had won the championship, so he was just sort of counting out the days before he was finished with F1. But Haken certainly shook him, especially after he'd had Andretti alongside him all season, posing zero challenge. There is a benefit in having a driver, keeping a, a great driver on their toes, and just making sure that they're not leaving anything on the table, whereas you know if you've got if you feel like you've got a second and a half in, in hand over someone, then you can leave half a second on the table and nobody notices it whereas if you've got someone like Hackett and turning up and pushing and and hurting the ego a little bit, it's quite good. it lights a fire under the driver, and who knows maybe if Andretti had stayed in the car, Senna wouldn't have won both of those last two races you, you just can't tell
1: I think they ought to improve the car though didn't they I think McLaren... I remember reading um Somewhere it might have been Tyler Alexander's book. Um, but anyway, I, I can't exactly remember, but I remember them, there was a story about how they, they unlocked some, some area of the, of, the, um, of the active in terms of the ride eye control, uh, which, which seemed to really improve the car, heading into Suzuka and Adelaide, and then center it on the last two races. So I think um, you know, there's, there's an element of that as well. But I agree with that. It would have just given him a bit of a wake up call. But I think there was also there was some emotion involved, certainly with Adelaide, wasn't it? You know, he really wanted to win that final race for McLaren before he left the team. Um, So I, I don't think it was the only factor that contributed to him winning those last two races, but it certainly would have fired him up a bit.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that he had a winning car and he just wasn't using it through the middle stages of the season. That they, they did find a few things with that car. In fact, when they tried a passive configuration a few months before that, they started to unlock a few things because obviously we know that active ride could hide some vices in a car that you wouldn't necessarily notice otherwise. So they, they were still pushing on with it, and it was actually a, that was a, that was a neat and tidy. It was a good car that McLaren. It, it's forgotten, but it, it was a very decent uh, decent machine, but. Yeah, I think it was good to make sure that Senna was able to get the most out of it and improve trim in the last uh, last few rounds. Yeah, Mika
0: certainly likes to take credit for those two wins and who can blame him. And on the subject of the McLaren, yeah, I think Patrick Head has said in the past that by the end of the year, McLaren's uh, systems for the driver aids that were about to be banned were, were very advanced, but Williams had sort of switched off by then because they had such a big advantage. So what else was going on heading into the Portuguese Grand Prix in '93? Not a lot other than the two biggest drivers on the grid at the time making seismic announcements about their future. Senna goes rogue on the Friday, telling journalists that he's leaving McLaren at the end of the year. Ron Dennis knew that was coming, but the timing still caught McLaren out. As Ed mentioned, there's a documentary about McLaren's 93 season and the camera crew were with Ron at the time at this weekend. And in there, Ron says he expects Senna is going to Williams, but at this stage, Ayrton isn't saying anything about that. On the same day, Prost announces he is retiring from F1, despite having another year on his contract with Williams. Prost was very vague at the time with his reasons for stopping, and he denies that it was anything to do with Senna. At the time, he said, this sport has given me a lot, but I decided the game wasn't worth it anymore. I have taken too many blows. There will not be a comeback. There is no temptation for me to go on at all. And those of you who listened to our Senna 94 episode will know that a few months after this, Prost was testing a McLaren with a view to a comeback. But let's dust off the Prost book released in conjunction with McLaren, uh, which anyone who listened to our Prost Ferrari episodes in series one will remember very well. Because in that, Prost says, in the middle of 93, we had discussions about Ayrton coming to Williams. That was difficult for me. Never at any time did I ask to be a number one or a number two. The only thing I said to Frank was, you are not going to have Ayrton in the same team. I knew already that Williams were having some pressure from Renault to have Ayrton. And I said to Frank, if you want to take Ayrton, you choose. I want to compete against him. I have no problem about that, but not in the same team. Then I said to Renault, okay, you are pushing for Ayrton. I have a two-year contract. You pay me for the second year and I leave. And that's exactly what happened. Karim, by this point, uh, Prost and Senna haven't been teammates since 1989. But was Alan still right to have this this real problem with considering being teammates with Senna again?
1: I think you have to consider where he was in life, right? You know, by that stage, Prost had been in Formula One for okay, he had a sabbatical, but he'd been in F1 really for 14 years. Um, he'd you know won four world championships and was on his you know on his way really at the at that point in the twilight of his career um and he I don't think the emotional strain of going up against Senna had gone away from him you know I think the 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 two years at McLaren particularly 89 uh, and I've spoken with Alan about this privately um you know in the last few years as well and you know so it is just a emotionally and mentally a draining experience for him being in that that environment and he didn't enjoy it and he said you know at the end of the day at this stage of his career he didn't need that he didn't want that and he decided you know he's better off walking away than putting himself through that again so you know whether whether it was right or wrong i think it's it's up to each individual to decide um i think if it was a young driver like Hakkinen, for example right who is you know starting out their career they're fired up they're motivated They haven't had any world championship success. They want to be up against Senna because they know if they can do well against Senna, that's going to make their career for the next decade, as it did in Mika's case. Um, But I think in, in Prost's case, he had nothing more to prove. You know, this was a guy who had, you know, he had basically finished first or second in the world championship pretty much every year, apart from 91. You know, if you look at between 83 and 93, You know, it's an incredible record. I think he'd had... uh, Sorry, 87 he was further down and 91 he was further down when the two years of the cars weren't there. But otherwise, he was always first or second. I mean, it's an incredible record with nothing left to prove. And and he just didn't, I think, have the, um, you know, the motivation to put himself through that again.
0: And what about Williams and Renault being willing to bin off Senna's great rival to finally get their hands on Senna? Because I think Renault and Elf were kind of behind the pressure to get Prost in the first place that pushed Mansell out the door. Yet here we are a year later, and now they've decided actually we want Senna. Was this, you know, what's what's the thinking there? How could they have so quickly decided they've had enough of Prost? Is that just the size of the draw of Senna?
1: The Renault one surprised me to be honest. I hadn't heard that part before that Renault were were keen on on having Senna in there. Um, you know, I I only read that in the Prost book that you mentioned. Um, you know, prior to that. As you said, it was the assumption that Elf and Renault had Prost brought, brought in in the first place. So, um, yeah, for whatever reason, Renault decided to, uh, uh, you know, well, they changed their mood, I suppose, on that. Uh, with Williams, you know, we know from way back in 1983, Frank Williams was always a big fan of Senna. And on various occasions over the years, he tried and tried and tried to get Ayatollah <laughs> into the car. Um, and therefore, I think... Ultimately, getting him in, in the car for 94 was was somewhat of a dream come true for, for Frank Williams.
0: Yeah, we talked about that on our Senna 94 episode as well. They had an incredibly close relationship for two people who'd ultimately been rivals throughout Senna's career at that point. Bernie Eccleston chimes in on the Prost situation. He's quoted in the press around his time saying of Prost, Racing will go on without him. Nobody is bothered about him. Prost thinks he can flit in and out as he likes. I hope this time he's retired on a permanent basis. The following week, Bernie uh, feels the need to clarify his comments to Autosport magazine, adding, I don't think it can be right for someone to win championships, leave for a year, come back and win again and leave again. We must be stronger with the regulations to stop drivers like Prost from coming and going as they please. We demand that the teams register their entries for 1994, seven days after the Australian Grand Prix. So that's mid-November, roughly. I don't see why we shouldn't ask the same of the drivers. Now, Ed, when Prost announced his retirement, he was also very critical of the FIA for what he felt were unfair penalties that year in Monaco and Germany, and for a war of words he had with the governing body ahead of the season. So with all that going on, plus Williams and Renault effectively being ready to dump him for Senna, and Bernie telling him to make sure the door doesn't hit him on the way out, had F1 fallen out of love with Alain Prost by this point?
2: Well, you always have to say anything Bernie Eccleston says with a, a bit of a pinch of salt when it comes to his public statements. I think, obviously, it, it served him well to to kind of do down Prost when he knew he was lost. I'm sure he'd have rather had Prost on the grid as well. He'd want all of those big names, Mansell, Prost, Senna, uh, because they their box office, ultimately. I wonder what he made of Mansell going and coming and going and coming, which, of course, Bernie was a, a, a key part of. But from Prost's perspective... There was a lot of history there, so I don't entirely blame him for feeling a little bit like he was being treated as a man of the past. I think to this day, actually, he's he's undervalued desperately. He's almost a victim of the cult of Senna. Don't get me wrong, Senna, sublime driver, an all-time great, but Prost seems to be reduced almost to the status of a villain in Senna's story uh, for for various reasons. Probably don't want to get into uh, to here, and he was anything but. Looking at some of those specific complaints, I can't see why he's complaining about the Monaco jump start. Because if you don't want a jump start penalty, you don't jump the start, and he did. I know this was an era where you could get away with that. They weren't quite at the point where this was fully uh, electronically managed and checked. And in fact, we, we'd have a spate of jump start penalties not so long after this uh, this period once they introduced that system. But the Germany penalty was absolutely outrageous. Uh, it, it was on the first lap. It was coming to the second chicane. Martin Brundle and the Ligier spun behind him, and that it was kind of was a right-left chicane, but with a cutting through the middle of that chicane was the old sort of right-hander, sort of the fast version of the corner. And Brundle spun down the first part of it across the current track where Prost was coming. So Prost took to the other bit of the shortcut to miss the second part of the chicane. All he could have done other than that was drive into Brundle. So he gained nothing from it. He avoided an accident. I have no idea why that was that was, that was was given. I can only assume that was either given because the stewarding, I don't know what they were thinking about, or they just felt, well, it does no harm for the championship to penalise the guy who's going to be the runaway winner. So I understand why he's annoyed uh, about that one. I'd argue that's probably the most ridiculous on-track penalty seen in Formula One ever. I don't think you can come up with one that beat it. Maybe there's ones that, that match them. But I think for Prost, he probably realises that he's kind of become a man of the past. He's, I think he was fairly satisfied with the way that, that season went. He didn't have to dig too deep too often. He came back, got that extra championship, beat Senna to getting into the Williams, which probably uh, he took a little bit of a amusement from, won the title, retired with 51 wins, which is then the record. Uh, so, so why not? But I think at the age he was, he didn't have much more left ahead of him, and and he knew that. And... It's quite interesting to wonder what he might have done with the 94 Williams, because on the one hand, it's hard to see him going toe-to-toe with Schumacher for the, the World Championship, but on the other hand, who knows, maybe he'd have played a part in detecting the, the underlying problems with the car more more quickly. It's another one of those uh, interesting interesting what-ifs. But I think it's a real shame that there is this negativity surrounding the retirement of one of the all-time greats in, in Alan Prost, because there shouldn't be. And I feel like there's a, that's a little bit there in his mind, today almost he's just not as celebrated as he should be and I think that's that's a real pity because he he is a he's a living legend Senna is rumored to have signed his
0: contract a couple of weeks after Prost told Williams at the start of September that he was retiring but the Senna deal isn't announced until another couple of weeks after Portugal and we've covered all of that extensively earlier in this series in the episode about Senna's final Brazilian Grand Prix so you can hear all of that side of the story there but we'll come back to more big news stories around this time including Peugeot's impending arrival in F1 and the McLaren Chrysler deal that never was post-race. For now, let's get on with the race weekend. It's an all-Williams front row with Hackenden and Senna on row two, as we mentioned earlier. Jean Alesi's Ferrari is fifth and Michael Schumacher is a disappointing sixth in the Benetton. Williams had some trouble on the grid with Hill's car. The starter jumped out before the engine fired and when they did fire it up, Hill stalled it. So he was sent to the back, which left Prost effectively on pole position, but from second on the grid on the inside, the dirty side of the track. Hackenden's third with a clear run ahead. This is a memorable start we referred to at the beginning of the episode with Hakkinen getting the better launch and pulling alongside Prost. He did upset Prost by squeezing him to the inside. And in fact, he was so worried about pinching the Williams that he leaves all that room for a lacy to swoop past both of them on the outside to take the lead. Ed, you were talking about Prost being unhappy with stewards just then. With this move, he said he thinks he'd have got a penalty for doing one tenth
2: of what Hakkinen did. Do you think Hakkinen stepped over the line? I think it was very aggressive from Hakkinen, but I think he was just sort of on the line. It was very aggressive. But this was at a time when that sort of thing happened less, and so we've got to be careful about applying the modern standards because obviously we're still yet to have the period with Schumacher doing this sort of thing off the, the line and it becoming a little bit more common. But not only does he squeeze him, there's also a couple of distinctive moves. There's sort of intimidatory sort of swerves that will go on back out of it, which I think probably are the thing that annoyed Prost. And maybe as well, there was just that little bit in the back of his mind where it set him off thinking about Esther '88 where Senna had done a similar thing, not on the, fir- on the very first lap, but squeezed him towards the pit wall, That was kind of the start of that relationship, disintegrating, actually. So sensitive uh, spot for that. Hackerden was pushing it. He got a reputation for perhaps going a bit too far and eventually got a, a race ban the, the following year for the Hockenheim start thing. I don't think Prost would have got a penalty for doing a tenth of that. And I don't think he'd have got a penalty for doing what and did. But I also don't think in a million years that Prost would have done that on the run to the first corner of a Grand Prix. That just was not his modus operandi.
0: And Karun, do you think actually the schoolboy error here from Mika was to focus so much on Prost that he left the racing line wide open for a lacy?
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, this
1: is obviously a guy who had come from racing in the midfield or the lower half of the grid to suddenly being thrown into the sharp end. And, you know... He's obviously excited. He's just arrived, out qualified, his superstar teammate. He's he's rocked up on Sunday morning, um, you know, full of full of beans to attack, and uh, and he's slightly misjudged that really. You know, he's he's left the gap wide open on the left hand side, and lazy didn't need a second invitation. You know, if you ever talk about a guy aggressive on the opening lap, that's Jean lazy isn't it? Um, and if there was a gap, he was going to go for it. So. I mean considering how bad the F93A was that season it's extraordinary isn't it that actually a lazy led a race I, I don't know, it's it's sort of you know you think back to that season all you think about is how terrible that car was uh they won no races okay they got three podiums but they were they were miles behind in the championship you know they were, I think they ended up fourth in there in the constructors but they were miles away from where Williams were points wise so It it, it certainly wasn't anywhere close to being a good Ferrari. Um, And the fact that Alessi managed to lead and actually led for a while. It wasn't like he just led lap one. He led the first part of that race, which is quite extraordinary, really.
0: That's the thing, isn't it? Senna, as we mentioned earlier, quickly put some manners on Hakkinen on the opening lap to take second place. But he can't do anything about Alessi because the Ferrari's V12 has got so much power. Alacy said, like the rest of us, I think, that he couldn't believe it when he was in the lead of the race. And this was the first time Ferrari had led a race since Spa 91, which is a race where they were quite competitive and Alacy could actually have won that race. So Karun, let's stick on the theme of, of Ferrari in 93, because this was the year Jean-Tot came to Ferrari. And it was over this weekend, that it was announced that Nicky Lauda would not be staying on as an advisor to the team. Do you think the news of Lauda's departure and a Ferrari leading a Grand Prix again at last was perhaps the first sign of of Todd being able to create some change at Ferrari?
1: Well, if you read Morris um, Hamilton's uh, book about Nicky Lauda, they, he talks about this era where he, you know, he says that for him leaving the team when Todd took over was almost inevitable. I think he You know, he knew that Ferrari, for the size of the team they were and the politics involved and all the stuff that goes around Ferrari, you needed somebody who was going to be working 24-7, sitting in Marunello, cracking the whip. And that was never going to be Nicky. Um, You know, they needed... And and jean Todd was the right man for the job, as history has proved, you know, from from the subsequent years beyond 93. So I I don't know if him, you know, if, if... uh, a lazy leading it at Estoril was really the first sign of a Chantor re- revival because they were still in that dog of a car which let's face it was pretty hopeless when we went to Suzuka and and Adelaide later on as well um but it was just a coincidence i think you know clearly the car had certain moments and certain places where the drivers could hustle a lap time normally a lazy because i think Gerhard was behind him pretty much all season um but, you know, that was a key, it was a key, key decision by Montezemolo and Ferrari really to get Jean Todd in, wasn't it? Because that completely, if you look back across the history of Ferrari in F1 from, say, I don't know, let's say 1970 until now, right? So let's take a 50-year period uh, that we're looking back on. They've had two mega eras of success. One was the louder Montezemolo era in the 17s, is the other one was the Schumacher era. And the rest of the time, they sort of underachieved if you look at the resources and drivers and uh, infrastructure and people and money that they've got. So, uh, yeah, really, you know, 93 was a critical year for them to be a turning point to to start building blo- putting in the building blocks towards their recovery.
0: Yeah, we did, a, we did a video on the race YouTube channel, or Ed did it, I should say, about Ferrari's...
1: I enjoyed that. I've seen it. The... Yeah,
0: about Ferrari's worst F1 cars. Yeah, the
1: history of the bad Ferraris. I forgot how many of them there were.
0: Yeah, and the uh, and 93 car is firmly in that list. But there's another noteworthy moment for Ferrari in this race, so let's cover that off now. And this is much more in keeping with how we remember early 90s Ferrari. Uh, Gerhard Berger ends up charging out of the pits after making a stop, and this was in the days before pit lane speed limits, and he gets up to such a speed that his active suspension lowers the rear of the car, which is what it does on the straights to reduce drag. But this happens just as Berger hits a bump at the pit exit, and he spins across the track, quite memorably, in front of Derek Warwick and JJ Leto. This is a description Warwick gave to Motorsport Magazine at the time. He said, I had my head tucked down going down the straight then from the right side, I saw this red thing come across. At first, you wonder what's going on. Then you think, where's it going to go? What's it going to do? I knew I had to jink round it, and I could just see it hit the barrier. When I looked in my mirrors, I expected to see that he had bounced back into Leto. I thought he'd end in a big mess. You think all of this in a split second. It's the sort of thing where it's best to just keep your head down and keep going. Now, Ed, this is a memorable accident, and one where there weren't—you know—there was no serious. Uh, consequences so perhaps we can sort of chuckle at the general shambolicness of it but this could have been a
2: much worse accident couldn't it and it was a sign of some of the dangers of f1 at the time yeah it was just a matter of luck that he happened to spear across the strait at just about the right time just ahead of the uh of the footwork of, of warwick obviously had he been t-boned you don't know exactly how it would have worked if it had been at one particular angle it was just spent the, sent the car sort of spinning off um at some high velocity it could have torn straight through it could have taken the front off could have been really bad and then of course you got the question of what it could have done to to Warwick had he t-boned him and then if uh yeah if Leto had got involved in it as well so he could have had all sorts of secondary impacts there of obviously if you've got a car that's already had one impact and you have another one it's weakened and it's even worse so that that could have been really really serious and it, it was pure luck and obviously Burger was just a passenger from uh, from that from the moment he hit the bump because of the active. So yeah, that uh, I can imagine that would have been a, a pretty unpleasant situation for Warwick to be to be faced with. Um, it'd be great. It was a real shame there's not an onboard camera uh, from uh, from Warwick's car just to show just how close uh, it got to it because it's quite hard to tell with that foreshortening effect. But yeah, probably one of the most bizarre incidents you'll see in in formula one and one that wasn't remotely down to the driver ultimately he was uh he was a passenger from that point very uh very very nasty and hilarious as it is to watch it because it is quite comedic when you have things like that you know you, you can have extremely serious consequences t-boning cars is not good it was it's not good now even with the safety safety standards we've got now and it was could have been dreadful then
0: yeah, I think burgers on board footage exists from that crash. And um, yeah, is it any wonder that Ferrari were said to be keen to get rid of active suspension and all those sort of things at the end of the year? But back to the race, Senna's charge behind a Lacey comes to an end after just 19 laps when his engine blows up. And Edton said it was a big bang and he thought the car was going to catch fire. At the end of that lap, McLaren decides to bring Hakkinen in to try to jump a Lacey, but Ferrari bring a Lacey in as well. That releases Prost into the lead ahead of Schumacher, who then stops on lap 21. And at the time, that was planned as the first of two stops for the Benetton. So by this point, we have a Williams 1-2 because Hill has come from the back of the grid to second in the space of 22 laps. Hill said he had fun coming through the field, as I guess you would when you have a massive car advantage. Uh, He also said this, which was quite amusing. My father once said that you meet a much nicer class of people at the back of the grid, and I'm not sure I agree with that entirely because it was pretty fraught at times. I wonder who on earth he could be talking about. Uh, Ed, is it any surprise Hill came through that easily, even on a track where everyone was complaining that overtaking
2: really was difficult? Well, I think I've got to defer to Karun Chanduk on this because after all, he knows more about F1 bat markers than, uh, than Karun. Well, <laughs> we'll just have to decide whether, whether you are a nicer class of person uh, or not.
1: Listen, I provide you your carrot cake, all right? When we don't have these COVID restrictions and you can come back in. I think uh, I think Freeman has just earned himself an extra slice of cake now. you have banned, Straw. Banned.
0: Oh, I've stolen Ed Straw's cake. Incredible. That question was definitely <laughs> worth it just for that.
1: Um, you know, it wasn't a surprise, to be honest, that uh, Damon was able to come through the pack as the car was much more competitive. I mean, this is the thing. You look at the, the gaps between the front and the back, in Formula One back then versus now. It was common to have six, seven seconds between, you know, the Williams at the front and the cars at the back of the grid. And this is the thing with F1 nowadays, isn't it? People are moaning about races being a bit dull. Uh, I was watching the replay of the 93 uh, Italian Grand Prix, where Damon won the race. lazy was 40 seconds behind him in second place. And he lapped everyone from third place backwards. Some of them, I think the people in the top six, fifth and sixth were lapped twice you know that's just how spread out the difference in performance was back then so no it wasn't a surprise that Damon came through. Um, It is amusing actually to read comments from Prost around that era about how difficult it was to overtake and he was complaining about aerodynamic issues um, you know with following another car even back then so that's a and that wasn't really an issue that that was highlighted back then you know so um, it's funny, isn't it? How, what are we now? 27 years later. Um, and <laughs> some of these problems are still ongoing. if not much, much, much worse.
0: Yeah. You think that some of the intelligent minds we'd have in F1 would have solved the problem by now, but Prost even mentioned it in our France 90 episode as well. He said that was one of the reasons he couldn't overtake, uh, Capelli, but Prost and Hill come in for their stops on lap 29 and 30. And Schumacher, who came in on lap 21, is now in the lead, with Prost second, and Hakkinen uh falling to third and fourth now after leading the first part of the race. And it's at this point it starts to dawn on Schumacher that he has track position. And if he can make these tyres last to the end, it's unlikely Prost will be able to get past him. Prost is expecting the Benetton to pit again. And it's only in the closing stages he realises Schumacher's trying to go to the end, and that's when Prost starts to put the pressure on. Schumacher's pretty robust in his defense, as we become accustomed to. And Prost noted afterwards um, that, yeah, Schumacher was pretty bold with his defensive driving. But Prost said it was OK and he understood it. So Schumacher hangs on to win, which is a remarkable turnaround after a weekend where he and Benetton were lost the whole time. And Schumacher said he was up so late looking at the data on Saturday night that he could still see data when he closed his eyes. He had problems with his race car until Sunday morning then tried the spare car in the warm-up and found it to be much better. So Benetton took the decision to switch to that for the race. Ed, this was only Schumacher's second win in F1. What did you make of his performance and the battle at the end with Prost? And do you think Prost might have taken more risks if he'd needed to win the race to win the championship?
2: Yeah, I think it was a, a fine, if unexpected, win for Schumacher because he'd been all over the place during practice in the original car. I think he'd had at least three spins, Uh, on Saturday and and on Friday so he really didn't expect to, to do well I think it shows the potential that 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 team and driver had together the 193 was a really good car the Benetton B193 and it was good they were able to actually show that they were opportunistic in terms of the way the race played out they were able to to find a way to to get into the lead and then and then hold on to it in terms of Prost if you watch the onboard I don't think he's cruising and collecting. I think he likes the idea of clinching the title with a win. I know we're, well, I've said this plenty of times, that Prost was taking a very calculated approach to 93. But we shouldn't mistake that for the idea that he was driving at 80% all the time, because he wasn't. I mean, he crashed in qualifying, chasing Hill's time, in fact, on Saturday afternoon. Um, So I I think he was looking for a way, but he wasn't willing to make kind of a uh, a low, uh, a high risk move, should we say, in order to make it to make it happen. But he's he's certainly not sort of dropping back and and parking a few seconds off the back of him. He's he's right there trying to force a mistake, and I think that would have been the, the ultimate thing, wouldn't it? To to do your uh, retirement announcement, say I'm off, clinch a championship, do it on the top of the podium. But instead, there's all this almost symbolic moment with uh, with uh, Prost clinching the title, but Schumacher beating him and i'm pleased that there was a race where schumacher was able to kind of hold off Prost like that uh for a win because it's just something that that's just nice that, that it that it happened we talked in the previous episode about missing out on uh center versus schumacher battles and we didn't have too many prost versus schumacher battles but that this is one that's that's there for the uh for the history books <laughs>
0: It's a newsy time for Schumacher post-race as well. And stick with us because there's still plenty of storylines we're going to talk about. And uh, as as promised, this is an epic episode. McLaren makes an audacious bid for Schumacher's services for 1994 to replace Senna. But Flavio Briatore of Benetton blocks it. A week later, Schumacher confirms that he's staying at Benetton. And interestingly, he says, it is absolutely positive, 100% that I will drive a Benetton next year but Benetton has got to do something about my salary. Now, this matter doesn't go much further, but amusingly, if it did, uh, it would have to go through the Contract Recognition Board, which was set up after Benetton stole Schumacher from Jordan in 1991. So Benetton's behavior back then is effectively paying it back here by giving it added protection. And we'll be coming back to that sorry saga from 91 later in this series with its own episode. But before we discuss... The, the idea of Schumacher and McLaren getting together. We've mentioned that McLaren documentary that we're talking about, and there's there's a small clip from that where, where they capture Ron and Schumacher talking about a possible future together. So let's have a quick listen in on that. The thing to do is come and talk privately one day,
2: away from everything, see how I think.
1: I believe really next year we see what is our team worth. If they're they're really a team to go for uh, the World Championship or not. Because this year it's all developed, developed. Now is I think the situation where something big has to happen to be better. If if, if we can do this, then it's fine. If not uh, after this period, I think I'm, I'm at the right time to leave. I have a conflict, and as long as the team is not changed to me, I don't want to change the situation. I want to respect the conflict.
0: Absolutely and, yeah. the way to be, but
2: at the right time. Yeah. Come and see, come and feel. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I, I'm going to do
0: this. Now, Karun, there's no question Schumacher dodged a bullet by avoiding McLaren for 94. How different do you think F1 history would have looked if he'd not been at Benetton in 94 and 95 and had instead formed a young gun super team with Mika Hakkinen, who, of course, after starring in qualifying, actually crashes out of this race? I
1: mean, that would have been extraordinary, wouldn't it? If you think about how things unfolded over the next few years, but also you think about what happened, what would have happened at Benetton? You know, who would have ended up in that fantastic B194? which, actually, when you look at it, only Michael was competitive in, you know, you know neither Joss Verstappen nor JJ. Leto, nor in fact, Johnny Herbert, at the end of the uh, at the end of the season, were truly competitive. ok, Joss got a podium in Budapest, But apart from that, Michael was the only one who was able to to really, really drive that car and take the fight and obviously win the world championship um, up against williams and and first Senna and then Damon. So, yeah, I think history would have been quite different, wouldn't it? Because, you know, who would have ended up at Benetton for those two years when they won the World Championship? Mika versus Michael in a fairly mediocre McLaren with, um, you know, actually probably the chassis was quite good at McLaren. It's just the engine was rubbish, wasn't it? 94. So, um, but actually, then you go a year later, Mercedes would have loved to have Michael in a McLaren Mercedes for 95 and they wouldn't have had to get Nigel back. And uh, there's all these other, you know, what ifs that could have happened. Um, but ultimately, I, I think in a way for the for the way the sport played out and the way that the subsequent years played out, it's best that they were in separate teams because we got all sorts of rivalries coming along um, in in the future.
0: Yeah, I think we've knocked over quite a lot of dominoes there that would have would have changed as a result of that. And actually, if you look at when Benetton lost uh, Schumacher in 96, Ross Braun always says that they think that car would have won the championship with Michael at the wheel. So perhaps Benetton would have just stayed a sort of semi-solid midfield team. But Schumacher's fastest in a post-race test at Estoril. And in this test, he's using a Benetton with four-wheel steering, which some speculated was in use at the Grand Prix. And that was reason for his struggles with his race car. But that's never confirmed The four wheel steer is set to be banned at the end of the year, but it shows how relentless development was of driver aids right up to the end of 93, that Benetton was still trying to get this system onto their cars for the final two races of the driver aids era. Schumacher says it's not that different to drive with the system. He said, it feels very good, but it doesn't change things a lot. I'm using the same lines and there isn't a lot of movement at the rear. It makes it a little easier, but right now the system doesn't work very well in slow corners, so we might not use it in Adelaide. Karin, was this an insight into how driver aids could have spiralled if they'd been legal in the years that followed in the 90s? I think up to this point, driver aids had really been a generic term for traction control and active suspension, but what else do you think we might have seen if if this had remained unregulated through the 90s?
1: I mean, you think about um, the the 93 Williams, obviously they had the individual, individual wheel braking, which is an early form of ABS, Um, They were effectively using it as brake steer. They introduced it, I think, in Magni Core, where Damon took his first pole position um, with with the FW15C. Um, You know, the thing with... One of the amazing things, really, about Formula 1 is the brilliance of the engineers and the creativity and the fact that they all think way outside the box. You know, don't forget back at that era, Williams had Patrick Head and Adrian Newey uh, as well as Paddy Lowe, you know, the real super team of, of minds, really. Um, and then, you know, at Benetton, you had of course Pat Simmons and Ross Brawn and Rory Bird, you know, some some amazing minds who who were all able to think laterally and outside the box. Um, you know, McLaren, uh, Ed, am I right in saying I think there was still a Neil Oatley era, wasn't it? Ninety three car, who's um, you know, had plenty of success in the past and since. So, I think you know, God knows where it would have ended up. I think it was the right thing because, you know, we we got to shake up the order, didn't we? When we got 94, it suddenly, it, it closed the pack up to Williams. Um, you know, certainly in 90 the, 92, they were on another planet. By 93, McLaren had caught up and Benetton had caught up. Um, but 94 allowed us to have a bit of a reset. And actually, you know... I think the tricky it is tricky because in 94, 95, Schumacher was the clear, clear number one driver on the grid, wasn't he? You know, once we'd unfortunately lost Senna and Imola, um, Michael was, especially in 95, he was just head and shoulders above everyone else. And, you know, he says he could have won the championship with the 95 Ferrari when he tested at the end of the year. Um you could argue he could have won that championship with a 95 Williams. You know, that was a car that took pole at 12 out of 17 races. So really, if they had Michael, they could have won it. So <laughs> this is where it gets a little bit complicated trying to judge. And, you know, the 94 car, even the even the Leigier was a good car, wasn't it? In 94 and, and 95, because it was basically a Benetton in 95. So, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's a funny one when you think about trying to judge how much of a difference the the banning of driver aids made to the competitiveness um versus the way it played out there's a there's a again there's a lot of what ifs involved
2: we have to be a little bit careful with the phrase driver aids because actually they didn't do the driving for you we saw that some drivers struggled with the active ride some didn't you still had to adapt to it likewise you know traction control era. When that was legal at times um, during Michael Schumacher's career, he was very, very good in the way he used the traction control and worked with it. It doesn't drive the car for you; you still got to understand it and interact with it as a as a driver. So that's just a it's just a small thing. I think there was this idea that it just made the cars really, really easy to drive. Active suspension really is a car aid because it allows you to have a much more critical aero map on the car because you can control the platform. So um, I think we should be careful about thinking that. That the era they were in there was just being made really easy for drivers because it quite simply wasn't. If it was, then why would Nigel Mansell suddenly be able to be in ninety two, two seconds quicker than Ricardo Patrese around Silverstone, for example? I think that was down to the crowd, wasn't it? Gave an extra
0: couple of seconds of lap.
2: Yeah, they did change the laws of physics in the uh, in that little part of Northampton. Yeah, so.
0: exactly. The other big story from this test at Estoril involves a young Verstappen who is just uh, a couple of years out of karting turning up and immediately getting on the pace. And no, this isn't a flash forward to an episode of Bring Back V6s in 20 or 30 years' time, or I imagine that podcast might be called Bring Back Internal Combustion Engines. This was Max's dad, Jos, getting his first F1 test with footwork. After nine laps, he's a tenth off the time Guri Suzuki set in the same car in qualifying for the Grand Prix. By the end of his first day, he's less than a tenth slower than Derek Warwick managed with a time that would have been good enough for 10th on the grid. Verstappen is the newly crowned German F3 champion by this point. And although he crashes and writes off the chassis on the third day of the test, he sets tongues wagging in the pit lane. We still get questions about this test. It made such an impact. Now, Ed, Joss would get signed by Benetton for 94, really as a as a reserve driver, um, but he ended up racing because of JJ Leto's accident early in the year. And as Karun mentioned there, you know, whoever was in the second Benetton, it didn't go very well and it didn't go well for Verstappen, certainly. So do you actually think that across his F1 career, this might have been the moment where Joss'
2: stock was higher than it would ever be again? Oh, unquestionably. He was massively being talked about after that that first test. He was on the front cover of Autosport just on the basis of that test. So he really had made an impression, not dissimilar actually to the one that his son would make when you had Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull, who did eventually get him falling over themselves to, to sign him as he, as he rocketed into to Formula 1. Obviously, it didn't work for Verstappen in, in Formula 1 for a multitude of reasons, probably starting with the way he made his debut and kind of in and out of the Benetton during uh, during '94. That didn't really help him at all. And In fact, Yoss said, and we're interviewing him, about this, that one of the things he tried to do with Max was kind of educate him all the things that Joss himself didn't know when he was in a, a similar position. So yeah, Yoss Yoss's stock was really really high. He was he was being talked of as a as a future world champion level driver. That that was the scale of the impression that he made. I have heard suggestion he was slightly better prepared for that that test in the footwork than uh, than maybe uh, was known at the time. Should we say? But that's just the driver doing his maximum preparation so I think he had a driver there with great raw material but he just never really uh never really was able to to show it which is a shame because he, he certainly he certainly had pace but at that point yeah I think a lot of teams would have been interested in signing him and Benetton saw him as uh, as a driver for the future
0: yeah there were so many team bosses quoted after this test you know talking about whether or not they thought They could get their hands on him. Interestingly, he's given Max lots of advice on uh, how to go about being an F1 driver in a better way because I know Jan Magnussen did the same thing with Kevin. So he got a couple of highly touted 90s F1 drivers whose careers didn't pan out that well, helping their sons make a better go of it. We'll finish this episode with another big story uh, from this test. So we're not quite at the end just yet because this one goes on a while. Um, But this had big implications for 94 Because McLaren isn't only looking for a new driver at this point, but also a new engine supplier, as it obviously didn't want to continue with customer Fords for another year. Before and after the Portuguese Grand Prix, McLaren tests a modified version of its MP4 8 with a Lamborghini engine. If you've seen this car before, you'll remember it's the all-white car with no logos on it. It looks quite cool, so if you haven't seen it, give it a Google. And a fun fact about that car, it was nearly four inches longer than the race version of the MP4 8, to accommodate the v12 from lamborghini compared to the ford v8 senna drives the car and he calls the engine promising and chrysler vice president francois castaigne says our ultimate goal would be to win the world championship and the best way to start working is with a test program to see if our strengths and talents can be combined into a team which is capable of taking on and beating the best in the world we have made a lot of progress in the last two years Utilizing our efficient team approach, we believe the same principles are well suited to the new era about to begin in F1. Ed, does that sound to you like a manufacturer thinking it can win in F1 on the cheap?
2: Yes, whenever you hear a a participant banging on about efficiency, it's usually to justify spending less than someone else. Even if you have the biggest budget on the grid, you still want to extract the full potential of your resources. So, efficiency matters. Efficiency is always a big part of all realms of performance when it comes to motorsport or any endeavour as soon as you're spending less you have to rely on those investing more to underachieve let's say for the sake of argument if you get 100% of the potential of what you have and get this impossible maximum efficiency then you need those with more resources to maybe get 95% out of what they've got so you're not controlling your own destiny you're you're needing pound for pound others to be to be worse grumpy racing is an expensive business and it's clear that Lamborghini had a lot of potential. The, the new V12 engine they produced for '93 did show how far they'd come. But there were long-standing questions about the scale of, of the commitment. Originally, that Lamborghini project was as a supplier to the, the Mexican-owned glass operation that was due to come in for 1991, producing the engine and doing chassis work as well. That fell apart, and Lamborghini created its own pseudo-works team, which was a modern team that competed for one year in '91. And prior to that, they had a Lamborghini engine on the grid for a few years as a preparation for that. But it always looked a little bit half-baked, shall we say, particularly for a mark that, remember, had very, very little motor racing pedigree. It's only really in recent times Lamborghini has had a permanent foothold in, in motorsport through, through sports car racing uh, of late. So it's absolutely legitimate for you to question uh, the, the ultimate commitment and, and potential given that they just keep coming back to this efficiency efficiency because as soon as you're saying if you're we're going to win spending a significant amount less than those who are winning you're saying we're going to be massively more clever and intelligent and better than these people who've been doing it for years and excelling so yeah very very difficult nobody says oh we'll try and do it on 80 percent of the money the others are doing because we just think we're good enough to do that you spend what what you can
0: yeah it rang some alarm bells certainly At the same time McLaren is going through this testing program with Lamborghini, Peugeot announces it's entering F1 in 94, but it doesn't say who with. Before Jean-Todd left Peugeot for Ferrari, he ruled out entering a team with an engine and chassis program on cost grounds. But Jean-Pierre Jabouille has taken over and has decided that Peugeot can enter as an engine supplier. Bizarrely, Peugeot even announces a date for its engine to run on track for the first time which it says will be January the 15th, even though it hasn't yet signed with a team. I think they did hit that deadline. Peugeot Vice President Frederick saint says, if we did not come to F1, we would never be able to say we were competing at the highest level. If we can get close to podiums next year, I'll be very happy. I hope that we can win Grand Prix in 95 and fight for the World Championship in 1996. So big ambitions for Peugeot. Jaboui meets with McLaren and Benetton around the time of the Portuguese Grand Prix. Although Benetton already has a Ford contract, but Briatore is trying to get out of that deal to get Renault engines, but that seems unlikely as Williams and Ligier have those deals tied up. Peugeot is rumoured to be tying up with LaRousse to create a French super team, but Jabouille says, it's not finished yet. I have the best solution in my head, but there are problems with team partners. That seems to be a nod towards Peugeot having a partnership with Total, and McLaren having Shell as its fuel and oil supplier. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, McLaren Peugeot is announced for 1994. There are quite a few jilted parties in this and we'll come to them in a moment. But Karun, let's talk about McLaren Peugeot. It turned out to be an utter disaster. We know that. But if we try to remove the benefit of hindsight for a moment, did this actually look like a smart move?
1: I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, to align yourself with the manufacturer, it is always important in Formula One. I think it's one of the keys to success. It's it's quite you know, it's quite rare really when you look at the post DFV era of Formula One, for a customer team to have won a world championship. Um, you know, I think that that is that's just part of trying to be competitive now. You have to be a works team. Um, you know, the McLaren did it more recently, didn't they? When they Went away from the customer Merck to the Honda deal, and again on paper that should have been the right thing to do, but they couldn't. They couldn't get the relationship to work as well as Red Bull or Honda have done. You know, they you know they're obviously winning races now. Even so, I think if, on paper absolutely the right thing to do. For whatever reason, you know whether Peugeot underestimated how difficult it would be, whether they were underprepared, but you know when you speak to Brundle about it, it tells you just how unreliable it was and you know I think the overriding memory when when you say to me McLaren Peugeot the first memory has got to be that Silverstone start hasn't yes, it with the engine yes. going going pop as uh, as the lights go out so I think that that really is a problem because you know when you look at the subsequent years 95 for example with the Jordan when they had the Peugeot engine the car was competitive wasn't it you know on a power circuit like Montreal I know there was a few other circumstances, but on a power circuit, Eddie and Barrichello finish on the podium with the Jordan Peugeot. So clearly, you know, by 95, they at least started to get on top of it. I think 94, for whatever reason, with either whether it was because they were with McLaren or because they weren't ready, that uh, partnership turned out to be a complete disaster.
0: Yeah, and Gary Anderson's talked about uh, the the Peugeot engine Jordan inherited uh, for 95 and the progress they made to actually have a supreme amount of power just a couple of years later. Ed co-hosts that uh, podcast, which is released by The Race. So go and check that one out because Gary's been asked several times about the uh, the 90s era of Jordan. And there are plenty of Peugeot questions in there. Okay, time for some of the upset people by this. And this is a great moment for Ed because he's genuinely going to get asked a question about LaRousse. Gerard LaRousse said when the news was announced of the McLaren Peugeot deal, I have worked on the Peugeot deal for many months. I am surprised and disappointed for French motor racing. There will now not be a winning French team in the immediate future. LaRousse gets some comfort initially from Lamborghini F1 boss Daniele Ordetto, who says the manufacturer will continue to work with the team. However, it's expected this will not be with the increased level of factory support that Chrysler was prepared to put in to work with McLaren. Audetto says, we respect the decisions that have been taken, but we are going to give our support to LaRousse, a team that merits more consideration than it has received. Our objective will now be to help it become a front-running team. So, Ed, do you have sympathy for LaRousse here, thinking they were on the verge of a Peugeot engine deal and then losing it? And, of course, we're only a year
2: away from the team going out of business. I've always got sympathy for, for LaRousse. And in general, given the facts, it was never that well funded.
1: You have you always have sympathy for any team that's been hopeless at the back in the nineties. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, the, the team's hopeless at the back in twenty ten. I have much less sympathy for, hence, uh,
1: hence, <laughs> uh-huh. hence the driver
2: ratings you got in twenty ten. But uh, but uh, no, uh, I actually think Larousse was a was a pretty decent Formula One team considering it. It, it really it constant changes of ownership and investors and all sorts. Obviously, Gerard Larousse uh, was continuous through through that time but the, I think there was just that desperation to get stability and funding and presumably they saw the Peugeot thing as a as a way of potentially doing that and really kind of unlocking the potential of, of the team so they end up being kind of doubly undermined by this because not only do they miss out on that but then Lamborghini obviously they continue with good engine but Lamborghini's not willing to get behind them and put the money in and you know saying well, well now LaRousse needs to become a top team well give it some funding and really show you're committed and make it the Lamborghini works team and give it the chance to fulfil its potential. Because, you know, 93, they only had two points finished. I think they scored three points in total. That distinctive sort of blue, yellow, green and red uh, car, but it was quite a basic car. And it's a shame because I think there was potential. there. Uh, that that team once finished sixth in the Constructors' Championship when it was running a, a Lola chassis. So it been fascinating to see how LaRousse could have done either more likely with with Peugeot really backing it or if Lamborghini had been prepared to invest to the same level it would have been with McLaren. But I think when you look at Lamborghini as a whole, I suspect they saw McLaren as their one shot of doing something and that they didn't really have the the long-term desire to, to put what needed to be put into LaRousse, which after all, LaRousse way back when Lamborghini first came in were there as a convenient development partner team. Ahead of this uh, this glass project that never happened, um, I just think there wasn't. They just weren't prepared to be uh, to be dedicated. It's a shame because yeah, that that was one of the the little teams that could in this era as well. Which is why it's one of your favourites. Now Audetto gets a
0: bit spicier later in the year when he gives an interview to Autosport and he talks of being screwed by McLaren and he also complains about Ferrari who tried to pinch all of his staff when the McLaren deal fell over or as I originally wrote on this script, punch all of his staff, which does seem a bit harsh. Chrysler uh, sells Lamborghini shortly after McLaren rejects the engine. And in general, they take the news pretty badly. A statement from a Chrysler PR person says, We are disappointed, to say the least. We have worked very hard in the last few months, including a very intense period recently putting together a team to interface with McLaren. The car was very quick, and Ayrton Senna said some encouraging things about it. From the technical side, everything looked good. We had discussions with McLaren and a meeting took place between Ron Dennis and Chrysler's president, Bob Eaton. There was a strong agreement to proceed together for the future. The decision must say something about F1. It's no secret that the mark must look at its costs and we wanted to introduce our lean and efficient approach to it. We develop road cars faster than our competitors with less investment and so keep our prices down. We thought it would be interesting to try to do the same with a leading F1 organization. Instead, Grand Prix Racing has another European manufacturer, not the global representation which the World Championship really wants. There's been little explanation for McLaren and White backed out of the project, but there's a special book that was released a few years ago titled McLaren The Cars. And in there, then technical director Neil Oatley, who we mentioned earlier, does offer some insight. Oatley says, we were only supplied with two Lamborghini engines for the initial development work. And since these came from the pool of engines that were also going to LaRousse, we really felt that Peugeot would be much more committed to working with us to to develop a potential race winning engine. To be honest, the Lamborghini engine was quite old technology, having been used by Lotus as far back as 1990. And we really couldn't see much of a future working with the team. So Karun, there are lots of sides to this story. Now we've heard them all, what do you make of it? Do you think our initial suspicion that maybe Lamborghini weren't prepared to be committed enough is, is what did for this project?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the phrase introducing our lean and efficient approach to building engines for Formula 1 would not be one that resonates greatly with McLaren in the Ron Dennis era. You know, this was a team that was...
0: No one wants to hear that in F1, No, exactly.
1: <laughs> and, and, you know... When you read John Barnard's book and you, you talk to people who were around McLaren like Joe Ramirez or, um, you, you know, Dave Ryan and and Indy Lal, people like that, you know, that, the Ron Dennis McLaren was a no compromise McLaren. You know, there's no there's no budget restriction. You, you know, he wanted people to think big and, and then he would go out and find the money, which he often did, you know, together with Marlborough, then with West and with other people like that. And that was their philosophy. So coming in and saying we're gonna we're gonna try a low budget, low-cost version, you could see why that was never gonna appeal to um that that Ron Dennis era of McLaren. I'm not I'm not saying they couldn't have done it. Um, you know, we just will never know. But I can you can see the mismatch in the in the philosophy of how you know the Chrysler Lamborghini were trying to do it versus the Ron Dennis McLaren philosophy. You know that. Philosophy of trying to do a lean mean um was probably suited to a team in the midfield whose whose methodology of going racing was very much about being lean mean and efficient. E- even a team like Benetton, for example, you know, we know um they never had, for example, the big budgets that McLaren or Williams or Ferrari had, and they were used to operating on a in a more efficient way. And you almost wonder if if Chrysler and Lamborghini had gone to Benetton at that time, um, and 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 worked with them. Whether they would have been more receptive to it, um, they were, of course, the works Ford team at the time. Whereas McLaren in '93 were always, you know, a step behind the um, the the evolution of the engine that Benetton had. So McLaren had to get a manufacturer deal. You know, there's no question about it. They they had to get one. Um, they opted to go down the Peugeot route, which in hindsight, it turned out to be a disaster. But you can see why on paper, people like Neil Oatley and Ron
2: thought, OK, Persia seemed a bit more committed to it. And and that's why they went down that path. Yeah, and you see from those comments uh, that were made by various people from Lamborghini, there's no kind of room for considering, well, maybe why weren't we right for, for McLaren? Which I think is the important thing. Remember, this is McLaren, a powerhouse team. OK, they had a couple of lean years by their standards but they're still winning races so yeah it's very very easy to look back at that and say oh the Lamborghini engine would have been brilliant would have won races in uh, in 94 but it's very very easy to just you know if if you just take a one promising test should we say if you just taken a Jos Verstappen and then after his great footwork test he'd retired he'd forever be this great lost world champion wouldn't he um but because the Lamborghini story didn't play out, it doesn't mean we shouldn't scrutinise it. And I think I like the idea of it doing well, but I fear that probably there was not the depth of commitment and probably the whole thing would have been derailed by what happened with uh, with Chrysler anyway.
0: Yeah, and I think people like to look back at this story and it's often said that Senna raved about the engine and, and Chrysler and Lamborghini even said that here. But looking back and researching this and looking at all the coverage at the time, you know, the word the word we read out was Senna called the engine promising bear in mind that by this point, he knows he's leaving the team. I'm not, I think maybe Ayrton was being polite or perhaps even didn't really mind if McLaren went for an engine that wasn't so great, but we'll leave it there. This was a crazy episode that took us all over the place in the space of a fortnight of F1 history. And that's why, looking down at my timer, we've definitely created the longest Bring Back V10s episode in history as I, uh, I wouldn't say feared, maybe anticipated we might and in the middle of it we did talk about a grand prix that took place as well what a remarkable time in f1 history this was and to have so many fascinating stories all going on at the same time so thank you for coming along for the ride especially if you've made it this far and have committed to the full episode we hope you enjoyed the absolute bonanza of topics that we talked about the next time we'll move around with that many different stories it will probably be our series finale when we're answering your questions so make sure you help uh, steer that episode by getting your questions in using the hashtag bring back 10s on Twitter. Next week, we're a little bit more focused. We'll be going into the early part of the 21st century and looking at the first season in F1 for a certain Juan Pablo Montoya.